Welcome to the third season of Murder in 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder in 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. Located on Canada's eastern shores is Nova Scotia. With quaint villages and brightly colored fishing cabins perched on craggy rocks. The province is home to the bustling city of Halifax with almost half a million residents. In the urban core, high-rises stand tall along the shoreline, appearing to be held up by a small sliver of land, reminiscent of a miniature version of Manhattan in New York. Its economy is powered by fishing, forestry, and natural gas, and is home to the Dalhousie University. And that's where we meet Taylor Sampson. He grew up protective of his autistic younger brother, Connor, and was immensely proud of him when he graduated high school. The coast revealed that Taylor taught himself to play guitar. He enrolled in Dalhousie University and was studying physics. But Taylor wasn't from a rich family and didn't have a trust fund, so he subsidized the cost of his studies with a student loan and selling drugs. Taylor had an entrepreneur spirit, and slinging five and dimes wasn't his long-term plan. It was just a temporary means of getting to where he was going. Taylor had an autoimmune liver disease and took medication daily. His girlfriend Mackenzie would check on him to make sure he was taking care of himself. She also knew about the drug deals and encouraged him to quit. Taylor's mom, Linda, also knew how her son supported himself, but she didn't judge him. Rather, she was proud he was putting himself to university. William Sanderson was about to start attending medical school at Dalhousie. William worked two jobs and was on the track team. And he, too, sold drugs to support his lifestyle. William knew it was dangerous and purchased a handgun and practice at the shooting range. He also installed video surveillance cameras in the parking lot, stairwell, and hallways of his apartment building. William and his girlfriend Sonia had been dating for a year, and she encouraged him to quit the drug business when he got accepted into Dalhousie. Court records reported that William promised her he would, and that he was going to do one last deal and then auction off his client list. To help fund his education, William's mother co-signed so he could obtain a $200,000 line of credit at the bank. He'd already used up $70,000 of it, and his mother wasn't happy about it. But William had come up with a plan. Dylan and William had known each other for a couple years and were roommates in apartment number two at 1210 Henry Street. Dylan knew William dealt drugs and would leave the apartment when William needed to conduct a sale, and William would repay his roommate with a little weed. 
In the summer of 2015, a mutual acquaintance in the drug trade introduced Taylor and William to one another. In mid-August, they met at Taylor's home so that William could sample some marijuana. They arranged a substantial transaction, 20 pounds for $40,000. William could turn that into 90000 On Friday, William let Dylan know that he'd need the apartment Saturday night. On Saturday, August 15th, Sonia woke up at William's. From there, she headed off to work. At noon, William received a text from Taylor asking if they could meet at 9 p.m. William responded that he needed to go to Churro, an hour away, to pick up the cash, and said they'd meet at 9 at his apartment, which was just around the corner from Taylor's. William asked how much product was ready, and Taylor assured him 20 pounds. After work, Sonia and William went out for dinner. But rather than go home together, he asked her to go to her friends for a few hours while he conducted his last drug deal. That evening, Taylor and Mackenzie were getting ready to meet friends and go downtown. But first, he told her he had to make a quick sale and would be back in 15 minutes. Dressed in shorts and a t-shirt, Taylor left his wallet, keys, and medication behind, grabbed his cell phone, and a large black duffel bag stuffed with marijuana. William texted Taylor and said he'd just left Turo, but in reality, William had never left his apartment, and he didn't have $40,000. Instead, he hung out with his neighbor across the hall, Pukiel McCabe, and his friend, Justin Blade, who were teammates on the track team and fellow drug dealers. The three were smoking marijuana and listening to music, and they noticed William seemed to be on edge. Just after 10.20 p.m., Taylor arrived at the back of the apartment building and texted William. Taylor sat down in William's kitchen and pulled the marijuana out of his bag and placed it on the table. William laid a few thousand dollars beside it. Then he reached down and brought out his revolver and fired a single bullet into Taylor's forehead. Taylor died at 22. Pukiel and Justin heard the gunshot and raced to the door and locked it. They pushed an ear flat against the door, trying to hear what was going on. All they could hear was a scraping of furniture. A minute later, William knocked on the door. Bukiel opened it to see a panicked-looking William. He never said a word, just turned and walked back to his apartment. Bukiel and Justin followed but stopped at the doorway. They leaned in and could see Taylor slumped over the table, blood running from his head. William strode past Taylor and began to pick up the blood-soaked money. Pukiel and Justin 
turned and went back to their apartment briefly. They had made plans to hit the bars downtown. As they headed out, they passed William's apartment and observed Taylor was no longer slumped in the chair, but could see streaks of blood from the chair to the bathroom. After a few hours, Sonia texted William to see when she could return. He replied, maybe in an hour. Concerned that Taylor hadn't returned, Mackenzie called his cell phone numerous times. William used bleach to clean up the blood. At 11.33 p.m., he turned off the video recorder. He ripped the shower curtain off the hooks and wrapped it around Taylor's body and placed him in the large black duffel bag, which wasn't easy considering he was six and a half feet tall and 250 pounds. He pulled the zipper up and dragged the bag down the hall, down the steps, and out to his car. The shoulder strap on the bag couldn't hold the weight and snapped. William heaved the bag into the trunk. He drove west to the Turo area and to a stream that led out to the Bay of Fundy. He dragged the heavy duffel bag through the dirt, unzipped it, and dumped Taylor's body into the water. At 12.15 a.m., William texted Sonia, telling her she could return to the apartment. She walked in to the smell of bleach and found William in a state of panic. He told her that he'd been auctioning off his drug clients when a fight broke out. Someone got punched and blood all over, and he had to clean it up. Just before 1 a.m., William turned the video surveillance back on. Laying in bed, Sonia put her head on his chest and could hear his heart racing. William laid awake, his shoulder bruised and hurting from the broken strap. But he couldn't think about that now. Just after 2 a.m., he quietly slid out of bed and set his alibi into motion. He texted Taylor's phone and said, This isn't cool, man. You said you'd be right back. Then, unable to sleep, he went across the hall to Pukiel's apartment and played video games. The next morning, William texted Taylor's phone again. Don't know what you're planning. Then he turned Taylor's phone off and took the drugs he'd stolen and hid them at his brother's house. Taylor's mother reported her son missing to the Halifax Regional Police. A couple days later, William drove to his parents' farm in Tarot and hid the bloody evidence. Taylor's family told police that he'd gone missing during a drug deal, which prompted the major drug unit to become involved. They quickly determined that Taylor's last cell phone contact was with William. William heard they were looking for him and voluntarily showed up at the police station. 
He told police that he'd agreed to buy a small amount of marijuana from Taylor, but that he'd never shown up. And he offered to show police their text messages. So police snapped photos of the texts before William left the station. At this point, he was merely a witness. But as soon as police started reading the text, that changed. William had lied. He was now a suspect. They put out a be on the lookout for William. Then fearing that Taylor might be at William's apartment, being held against his will, injured, and needing his liver medication, they raced to conduct an exigent search of the apartment. This type of search can be performed without a search warrant when there is immediate risk of life to a member of the public. That evening, police broke down William's door. In his bedroom, an officer found the DVD recorder, an empty Smith & Wesson gun box, and a safe. Officers spotted blood throughout the apartment, Concerned that William could remotely erase the contents of the DVD recorder, officers disconnected it. Police tracked 22-year-old William down to nearby Dartmouth, where he and Sonia were visiting her grandmother and arrested him. Police now obtained a search warrant for William's apartment. They found almost $2,300 in damp, $20 bills in a garbage bag in William's bedroom. In the bathroom, they found another 5000 hidden in the bottom of a garbage can. The video footage showed Taylor arriving at William's apartment, but never leaving. Meanwhile, William's brother discovered the backpack full of drugs and contacted a lawyer who arranged for it to be turned over to the police. Officers interviewed William. He claimed that two men wearing masks shot Taylor and left the apartment with his body. Police didn't buy it, and William was charged with first-degree murder. Police learned of William's trip to Tarot and descended on his parents' farm. Divers dove into the pond. As searchers found out, they recovered the shower curtain and black duffel bag. DNA tests would later confirm the blood on them was Taylor's. His DNA was also found in the trunk of William's car and on multiple surfaces in William's kitchen and on William's gun that had been found locked in the safe in his bedroom. Two years after Taylor's murder, William went on trial. Kukiel and Justin testified for the prosecution. After eight weeks and four days of deliberation, the jury found him guilty of first-degree murder, and he was sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole for 25 years. CBC News reported that afterwards... Taylor's mother stated in part, I want my son back. I'm not going to stop looking for Taylor. I'm bringing him home. William appealed his conviction. At his second trial in February 2023, 
William admitted to killing Taylor and dumping his body into the Bay of Fundy, but claimed it was in self-defense. The jury rejected this, and William was found guilty again, but of second-degree murder, and was sentenced to 15 years. He will be eligible for parole in 2030, but that doesn't mean he'll automatically get parole. It will be up to the parole board to determine that. Afterwards, Taylor's mother told the press, He's evil. There's a special place in hell for him. Taylor's body has never been found. In an interesting twist, William applied to the court to have his laptop returned to him. It had been seized as evidence. He declared that he'd used it to purchase Bitcoin worth around $8,000, and since the murder, it had appreciated to possibly $200,000. And that he needed the laptop to access his account, saying that he planned to use the money to pay his legal team. The court has yet to make a decision. Taylor's mother Linda and his brother Connor have recently filed a wrongful death suit against William. If they win they could be awarded the Bitcoin funds. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Amber Bray. Young love is powerful and sometimes deadly. Amber manipulated her boyfriend of a few months into eliminating her mother and sister. But it wasn't like the video games Jeffrey played. Dixie didn't die from the first bullet. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, We'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or Murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.